Hi, everybody, and welcome to Import This, a podcast for humans. My name is Kenneth Reitz. How many uh, software engineers does it take to screw in a light bulb? How many, Alex? That's a hardware problem. Somebody else. <laughs> That's good. You should probably cut that. That was awful. That was good. I'm going to open the show with that. <laughs> <laughs> So just for some context for the audience, my name is Kenneth Reitz, and I um, work for Heroku, and I'm a Python developer, and I write a lot of open source software. I'm known mostly for the Python requests library, OSXGCC installer, Python guide, other stuff. I also do photography. I'm a musician. Alex? Yeah, so I'm Alex Gaynor. I work for Rackspace. I also do Python stuff. I also do a lot of open source Python stuff. I'm known mostly for my work on Django and PyPy. I don't really have hobbies besides uh, software development. I do like sports ball. I do like uh, bagels. And you, uh, you, comp- you computer. Yes, I computer a lot. <laughs> the idea for this podcast is basically that... Um, uh, a lot of, you know, there's not very many Python podcasts right now that are very regular. And uh, there was a really great one from Lincoln Loop that I really enjoyed. And I like listen to it on a regular basis, but um, it's no longer around, unfortunately. So I decided that I wanted to do one and Alex is awesome. So we're doing one. I really like the format of having podcasts that don't have interviews with guests very often. I feel like when you're focusing on guests all the time, it really kind of, it doesn't let you really focus on too much meat. And uh, I like focusing on meat, personally. <laughs> yeah, I feel like uh, we discussed that this podcast, if it's going to work, it's going to be because we, we're both, you know, strong-willed, opinionated people, and we disagree a lot. <laughs> if we, do, we do disagree a lot. Fuck you, Alex. And a good day to you, too, sir. <laughs> so, so we just got the explicit tag on iTunes. Nice. So let's, I guess, dive into our first topic. Uh, today, GitHub announced they've been working on a, a new text editor for programming. Yes, yeah, so I've actually, I'm, I was in a bar about two years ago, a week after I started at Heroku, and I met this random GitHubber, I had a GitHub drink up, of course. He was afraid to tell me what he was working on because he had just started at GitHub. And I was the first person that he ever told. He like whispered into another GitHubber's ear asking if it was okay for him to tell, and he's like, it's cool. Kenneth's cool. And then he told me about Adam. This was two years ago. And like, I've been dying to get my hands on his thing for the last two years so have you gotten to play with it yet yeah i just got it today and what are your impressions so my initial impressions are basically that it's sublime text it looks a lot like sublime text no doubt it obviously takes a lot of inspiration from sublime text too um with but it has like a lot of huge improvements one of the first things you do when you install sublime text if you want to you know use it well is you want to install um a package manager i can't remember the name of the one. package control yeah yeah and like that's built right in and not only that but it's like curated right like you don't have to go you know they have like a nice github is curating a list of packages right now there's only a couple because it just was launched today obviously but you just like hit like i think it's a command shift p and then you start hitting package names and like they're all in the list and that's uh i thought that was really amazing personally yeah i think having the package manager built in out of the box is a pretty cool i don't want to call it an innovation but like it's a very cool step up above uh sublime text where they're separate things for kind of no good reason because everyone uses it uh my kind of first impression was 
So I guess to back up a little, Atom is for desktop app built a little non-conventionally in that it's uh, it's like a WebKit view with uh, browser JavaScript and taking advantage of Node.js to be able to do some of the things that you know browser won't let you do, like access files on disk and do network and all that stuff. So a little unconventional architecture. Uh, and what kind of one of my first uh, takeaways was it shows a little bit that it's a it's, it's in a browser type environment. But it doesn't uh, feel that way when you're using it. It actually it, feels really fast. So a lot of things really feel really fast. Some other things show up for me. For example, scrolling around big files is kind of noticeable. I didn't get that far yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're talking about Node.js embedded in it. Talking to the GitHub guys about this, and they actually built a, an extremely cool framework to, uh, for this that they're planning on launching in the future. Basically, what, I think what it is is like they took Node.js and in V8, and they basically made this like portable, executable runtime to build desktop applications that just like com- are completely portable. You know, kind of like you you do with like PyDEXE and all those different um, tools, but it works for Windows, OS X, Linux. And they like put a lot of work into this. Right now, Adam only works for OS X because that's their target at the moment. But soon they're going to launch it for like others. And I, they're planning on open sourcing this other runtime too. And I think that's really going to open the gate for all kinds of desktop applications because, you know, Python's great for making all these desktop applications when you're using like PyDEXE and, C, you know, BBFreeze and CXFreeze or whatever all those other tools are called I used to use. <laughs> but like... I think Node.js might be a good fit for this because it's an you know when you're doing desktop programming it's all event driven, right? Sure, absolutely. This is I mean if you ever talk to the twisted people, this is one of the points they hammer home over and over again. <laughs> Come on, you're already used to programming this event driven fashion like you do it whenever you write a GUI. Yeah, exactly. You, you mentioned open sourcing it, which brings up for me one of the things that I'm frankly a little bit confused about with Adam which is uh, sort of its open source status. They talked about uh, Atom is supposed to be very, very modular. So like lots of core functionality is provided by uh, plugins that are installed by default. Like, for example, find and replace appears to just be a plugin, yeah. even though it, like, it feels like a core editor feature, which is cool. So they have something like over 70 of these are already open sourced. But what does not appear to be open source, and it's unclear if it will be open source, or maybe the source will be public but not licensed compatibly, or maybe it won't be open source at all, is sort of the core that binds all these together and gives you an actual text editor. Yes. Which which is a bit odd, I feel like. Yeah, so uh, if you look, when you open it the first time, it says that the beta is free. So it's safe to assume that they're going to be charging for it in the future. I don't know. I feel like I already have a closed source editor that I pay for that I really like. And so far, it, it feels like it's really nice for, like, a first version, but it also feels a bit like it's the rough cut, and it's going to get better. But I don't know. I I kind of feel like, you know, you know how, like, when you, you know Python, you don't feel like you need to learn Ruby because it's another dynamically typed object-oriented programming language. It's, it's like, very similar to what you already have. Yes, of course. I feel like Adam is kind of that to my sublime text. It's like, okay, it's another editor that seems to have a very, you know, keyboard drop-down paradigm-oriented thing. With, you know, fairly extensible. Uh, well, see, so that's the thing about it is it's actually way more extensible, I think, than Sublime Text is based on some of the things I've heard. So, yeah, like, I mean, it, like, it's very clear that, like, you know, core features like find, replace being uh, built as plugins means it's really extensible. But I, I'm not like, sure if that actually matters to users. Like, if you go look at, like, the find, replace thing, if you look in the settings, like, one of the first things you see is um, it says, like, the default scope is is like the dot editor class 
for example. So when you start thinking about that architecture, uh, you know, because it's like in this like browser-esque setting in the desktop, right? Uh, you can apply that to like, so think about if someone like wrote to some plugin that has like, say, I don't know, you could have like your terminal running inside of of your text editor. And I know that they were, there is a plugin to do this at some point. They said they're going to open source it soon. Um, you know, like you could have all kinds of plugins that do all kinds of things. And you just have these simple little like, you know, jQuery style selectors to do all kinds of crazy stuff, you know, like that. I think that's kind of the goal of this is that this is this new platform. And what we're seeing here is like a minimum viable product, basically. Yeah. I, I mean, I believe that, the, you know, the technology is pretty exciting and like particularly the way they're combining, it could be really interesting, but I, I'm going to keep using sublime text. Is I guess <laughs> what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm not, I'm definitely not switching over yet, um, but I'm super excited about it. Cause like when I started programming on my Mac and I started like, getting into apps the the first software i'd always like pirated software my whole life you know and the first thing <laughs> i ever wanted to pay for was textmate when i got a mac you know and it really like inspired me i'm excited that there's something that's worthy to switch to even though it's too early to tell you know yeah i'm certainly excited to see where it goes if even if I'm not ready to use it yet. And I mean, and I, based on the, you know, just knowing that they were working on us two years ago, they're obviously willing to invest time and effort into it. And based on the fact that it's, they're probably going to charge for it. They're probably, it's probably going to be sustainable too. So, so I, I think they've actually been working on it longer for, than two years. I saw uh, Chris Wanstrit, the CEO and co-founder of GitHub tweeted a, an image that, you know, the, commit box from uh, github showing a commit on this from like 2008 so six years ago are you serious i didn't know about this yeah wow that's amazing so they've clearly been thinking about it for a long time 2008 <laughs> I, yeah it's, that's, i think it's interesting that you bring it up uh you know whether it'll be sustainable or not because i mean they've clearly invested a lot in it but I, I always just think like a text editor for me doesn't really feel like it's a part of GitHub's core focus, although maybe I'm really, really wrong about that. Well, it's one know. of the things I was really shocked about when I first found out about it. My, my initial impression was, you know, when I like, I was like, wow, they have someone working full time on like on this, that the GitHub has way too much money, right? <laughs> but now, but now I, that I see it and it's done and I see kind of the vision, I'm, I'm kind of excited and it makes me think that, you know, I don't know, kind of makes, reminds me of the, the old GitHub that like was inspiring, you know? <laughs> if nothing else, it's clearly light years better than most of the editors I've ever used actually like in a browser, like GitHub or Bitbucket's edit feature. So yeah. I would love for this to take over from them. I mean, imagine a world where Sublime Text didn't exist. This would have been... Oh, yeah. I would say this is a very clearly a huge step up from what I had pre-Sublime Text. Yeah, I used to use gedit as my primary edit for years, and even the first time I had a Mac, I ran gedit under like the <laughs> under like the GNOME for OS ten stuff. That's like, awesome. I was I was a hardcore gedit user. You installed GTK on your Mac? Oh, oh, heck yeah! <laughs> in, like in X eleven, or does it actually have like no? A... So they have a as of a couple of years ago, they had like a native GTK under OS ten thing that kind of wow. looked okay. That's, I was I was happy. That's impressive. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. I, I contributed to the Python um, thing already, the default snippets and stuff. Oh, yeah? It's kind of bringing how, me back to my old that? programming days because like, when I first got on GitHub, the very first thing I did was like contribute to a bunch of um, TextMate stuff. You know, like I, huh. I made like a few themes and I made a bunch, you know, and that was like my yeah. thing. So like I'm, I don't know, it's kind of nostalgia for me. Maybe, yeah. I don't know, maybe that's one of the reasons they're doing it. I don't know. 
That must have been why they started it back then, because TextMate was the shit back then. I never used TextMate. One of the hottest channels in IRC was Pound Pound TextMate. I believe it. I, I remember when every other day I saw a screencast for you use whatever new web framework. Oh, yeah. And you, you could see the person was typing with text. <laughs> like, you knew it. Yeah, at Heroku, we just hired a, a PHP guy um, to... <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. You hired a PHP person to do PHP things. To do PHP things. And he uses TextMate. And I'm like, I used to be you. I remember so that. <laughs> TextMate went open source, right? Like... I don't know how much of a community. Oh, they open sourced it because it was abandonware. Like that's the thing now, and I think it's better maintained now. Is my impression. I had no idea. It couldn't be less maintained. I don't know. I'm excited about it. I I I don't mind the fact that it's closed source. I know a lot of people are upset that it's that that it's obviously going to be closed source. But I I I don't know. I don't have any ethical issues or anything. I don't have a problem like paying for closed software. That's what my editor is today. But like when I think about like the way they've structured all i think about you know there's the idea of the open core open source uh ecosystem which is kind of meant like derogatorily like right you you have an open source sort of core or an open source framework or whatever but like all the things that you actually need to use it are closed source right so you can't in practice like it's open source but you can't use the project i kind of feel like this is the inverse of it like closed core open ecosystem and I don't know. It's, I'm having a lot of trouble actually articulating my discomfort because, like, I open source all my things under BSD. Like, I'm okay with you literally taking my open source and selling it. But this feels a little weird to me, and I should try to articulate why better. I don't get the why, I guess. Like, what's the impetus to keep it closed source? Either, like, totally constrain me like my existing closed source editor does, or uh, or let me, like, really dive in like I I don't like the half measures, I guess. What's the difference between this and what Sublime Text does? I feel like, you know, the existence of, like, so much of the ecosystem, like, the so heavy plugin architecture. Uh, but Sublime Text is the same thing. It's almost like you wish they would close us more of it. I guess, kind of. I just feel like my concern is not real well-defined, I feel like, but it's, it's very palpable. I don't know. All this has me thinking about sort of one kind of, I guess, weird thing, which is... It feels like the two most popular editors of the last decade, at least within my circle, Sublime Text and TextMate, both had this really interesting property, which is when I when I think about a text editor, I think about like a text editor is like a really serious project, which like complexity far outpacing what like oh I type I type text into a file. It's so simple. <laughs> like there's clearly complexity that far outpaces that and having like high performance like autocomplete and all that stuff is like a lot of technical challenges. But these two most popular, you know, editors, at least among the circle of people I interact with, were both written by like one person each. Yeah. It's kind of incredible, isn't it? Yeah. I don't have a particular takeaway other than that, other than I, like seeing this editor that this you know, this company that does a lot of other stuff as well has put so much energy into really makes those two, I guess, stand out in some way to me. Maybe that's what drives this architectural decision where they keep this core, this very small part where this may be maintained by one or two people that like is really hyper-efficient and has all those features. And then all the rest of these things where people want to branch out and add all those features can not take away from that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. I, I guess I'm excited because I feel like this could really inspire a lot, you know? Yeah, and when it does, I will totally be the first person to get on board. <laughs> And when it does. <laughs> All right, so let's let's do a game. A game? We're still re- kind of game. We're still recording. Oh yeah. All right. 
So because we're so, our, our opinions differ, I'm going, you're going to describe how my opinions are and I'll describe how your opinions are, but you have to go first. What? <laughs> uh, I feel like your opinions are very shaped by, by the aesthetic, by, uh, you know, understanding the, the sort of the end to end experience someone would have interacting with the project or the, the idea. Thank you. That was very kind. I feel like you're, you're data driven. That's what it is. Thank you. Yeah, I'm experience driven and you're data driven. I mean, uh, well, anyway. Uh, I don't know. We spent a lot of time on this. You want to take us into our next topic? Yes. Alex Gaynor, why don't you tell us what you do for a living? So the project that's getting a lot of my uh, free time lately is uh, a new Python cryptography library called, cleverly enough, Cryptography. Excellent name. Yes, thank you. Is it cryptography for humans? Uh, so if you don't mind us taking that moniker, yes, we absolutely <laughs> want this to be cryptography for humans. We, uh, The people who are working on it were a mix of people who have a lot more cryptographic familiarity than I do. And, you know, people like me who six months ago, eh, we didn't really know what we were doing. And <laughs> as we learned more, we really discovered that, like, you know, we thought we could use these other APIs, but, like, we were, like, we didn't realize we were fumbling in the dark. So it sounds make... like cryptography is one of those things where the more you know, the less you know, right? Uh, it's kind of like the more you know, the more you know you didn't know what you even thought you knew. <laughs> oh, man, that's a total tongue twister, but... I know what you Listen mean. to it three or four times, you'll get it. So the big news last uh, started last Friday was Apple announced there was a, a major bug in the SSL implementation for iOS, and they shipped, they released a patch for that. The the bug was basically that under certain like configurations, which the a server or some uh, someone on the network would be able to provoke these situations. Basically, your certificate wouldn't get validated at all. So TLS SSL is supposed to provide two things. One is an encrypted channel between your client and your server, so that someone peeping in can't see what you're sending or receiving. The other component it's supposed to provide is authentication, so proof that the server your client is accessing is really who they claim to be, that you really got Google.com and not, like, my fake Google.com that, like, was able to hop onto your IP traffic for whatever reason. Or man-in-the-middle attacks. Exactly. And so it turns out the authentication was basically not actually being validated. The signature the certificate provided was just not being checked at all. And can you elaborate on to exactly why this was happening? Yeah, so this is... <laughs> this is Apple kind of got screwed because it's like the world's most photogenic bug ever. <laughs> Basically, like if you've ever written C code, you probably know that you're allowed to omit the curly braces from an if statement. And if you omit the curly braces, whatever like the very next line is will become part of that if statement and anything afterwards is not. So they had a bug where there was, you know, if error equals do something, you know, kind of typical C error checking, go to fail. So, you know, if there's an error there, go to the failure case and handle that. Unfortunately, they had the line go to fail twice, which basically meant that you went to the failure case if uh, you hit an error, and you also went to the failure case if you hit a success. So basically, so. every single time, verified SSL, the very first time, it would check one type, and then the second time... Uh, it would check for the second type, and then if it failed, it would just be like, we're all good, right? Yeah, basically, it was always going to this case. Yeah. So you never actually got to the final step of validation. And it's been like this for years, and no one's noticed. Uh, 
So I don't know how long it was out in uh, iOS. In OS ten, it was it was it only affected Mavericks for OS ten. Oh, so okay. not as bad. I don't know about iOS. PSA: Everyone should go update immediately. All the patches are out. Yeah, the sort of really bad thing was uh, the iOS patch came out Friday, and almost immediately people realized this bug also affected OS ten. The patch for OS ten did not come out until Tuesday, yesterday. Yeah, and so that was really bad in that. You know, Apple basically zero dayed themselves, right? Like they, you know, told the world there was this bug and then the bug affected their other platform, which was just unpatched. So you think if they did, they should have waited to release the iOS? Yeah, absolutely. I think they should have deferred announcing until they were ready to uh, have patches ready for both platforms. As far as I know, someone reported the bug to Apple responsibly. Then Apple did the iOS patch. Mm. Then... I, I assume Apple had to have known internally that it affected OS X. And it's possible there's something we didn't know, like iOS was actively being exploited, in which case it was responsible for them to get the patch out earlier. Yeah. But if that if that was not the case, I, I really feel strongly they should have waited the three days or whatever it was. It looks like they rolled this into the regular 10.9.2 patch that was going to come out anyway for OS X. So I assume that include, was what caused a delay. It just feels like they should have... Both should have come out at the same time, unless there was something we don't know. It's hard to speculate completely, but so this, with the information we have, it, it looks like they exposed users to unnecessary risk. So this is a good example of how not to software? Uh, yeah, uh, kind of. <laughs> I, 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 I never really want to be down on somebody, you know, because every piece of software has bugs and security issues happen. And I've been on the other side of it, like emailing users and putting out the, you know, security notification that, you know, a project I work on has, you know, a, a critical issue. And of course. it sucks. So, like, you know, you don't want to make fun of them, but you, you do want to learn and figure out how can how can we better protect, you know, for the projects we run. Like, what can we learn from this in terms of having improving our own security yeah, and procedures? Yeah, it's, it's basically have a unified response if you have any kind of staggered... Don't have a staggered response, basically. Yeah, exactly. Sort of from the moment you announce it, it's it's really a race between you to get patches into your users' hands and someone outside to be able to exploit it. Yeah. And so you don't want to give the bad guys any advantage. I couldn't agree more. For our next topic, we're covering Hacker News. And I'm going to tell you a little story. All right, so I'd say probably in 2009, I started reading Hacker News. No, in 2009, I started becoming like a real developer, right? And I was like all alone out here where I live in Winchester, Virginia, right? Yeah. In the middle of nowhere. And, uh, you know, I was like really getting into stuff. And, and I found this wonderful website. And I, I loved it. It was the most amazing website in the world. And it was called Hacker News. And uh, it actually really changed my life. Every day I would check it. And I would just find some of the most inspirational articles on there. It truly changed my life. I don't know if it was the same for you. I feel like I've talked to a lot of other people and it was kind of the same thing. But over the years, it's kind of slowly... um, I don't think it's me that's changed. I mean, I know I've changed quite a bit, but um, the site has definitely changed and the community of people that are on there has definitely changed. Um, And I, I, I don't read it at all anymore because uh, I find that it's just a very toxic thing um, for me, and it's better for me to just isolate myself from that. And I know that you've gone to such an extreme. that What, what do you say you do again? So on my, my desktop <laughs> computer, I have, I've edited Etsy hosts. Uh, <laughs> Hacker News does not route for me, doesn't resolve. I, literally the only time to access it, I got a pseudo-vim Etsy hosts and like 
do the whole dance. So, but but you have literally removed Hacker News from yeah. I from for me like you can't even access it if you want to. Yeah, for me like visiting news sites like that is just it's it's kind of it's very like a compulsion and like on my phone where I can't just cut myself off like I do actually visit it. I, I even mean, though like I don't like it. I still visit it probably I'd say once every two weeks just to you know and i'll look i don't know like every once in a while i'm just like you know i want to see what's on there but uh and sometimes there's a couple good things but it's it's different when it's every day you know and because there's a lot of really bad things on there for me at least and i'm not trying to i don't know i mean do you feel the same way like why did what made you what drove this decision for you so for me I think I started visiting Hacker News a lot later than you, like maybe 2010, 2011 is when I, you know, first started browsing the site. And for me, like my decision to start blocking it a year or two ago, whenever it was, I don't feel like I ever really saw the community change. I do feel like I changed myself. And like, I really feel like Hacker News is very, I, I kind of don't know how to describe it. Like, I don't want to use the word fashion driven, but like Hacker News is very... It's. I, I guess let me share uh, an anecdote from a couple months ago that I came across. So a couple months ago, there was a, a company or an open source project, something like that, that launched uh, some encrypted uh, chat program. And uh, almost immediately after launching it, a serious cryptographer posted like a pretty like critical review of it, pointing to a number of like pretty serious issues in it. And, uh, you know, so somebody else who's neither involved with the project nor the cryptographer did like a, you know, write up about like how they perceived the experience. And one of the, the things they called out was like, this is a typical thing for Hacker News where there's, you know, there's so much negativity from like these so-called experts who like really know, like claim to really know what they're talking about. Just like criticizing this project, like instead of trying to help it. And for me, I feel like that really solidified my understanding of what I disliked about Hacker News. I feel like hacker news comes out of a like a particular culture that's you know very tied to the y combinator ethos which is like you don't need particular domain expertise like if you're like driven and like you know really invested in your startup and you know your talented software engineers like we can tie you to the domain expertise you need like yeah you don't need to be an expert in like what you're working on i feel like that ethos like doesn't really recognize sort of the value of expertise and uh particularly that comment, but I think this is a a thing that I see in a lot of online communities has a real difficulty describing what it means to be negative about something. And I I struggle with, I think, being over negative a lot myself. But I I really feel like, you know, posting like a serious security review of something, that's, I guess that's sort of negative material, but it's not just idly being negative. That's like, you know, when you're building a security or like a privacy product, like you have a responsibility to your users, someone pointing out that you've failed in that responsibility is, is not the same as somebody just coming by and sit, posting, oh, this sucks, like worst thing ever, LOL. Like, <laughs> you know, there's like, a, there's like a spectrum of like kind of, I guess, what it means to provide feedback that's not this is good. And yes, like, yes, yes. We have to like... Part of that spectrum is like very important content. I, well, I think it's. Uh, I, th- I know we've had this discussion before, where it's different 
because I, I, you know, I, I have this blog post where I write about how um, people need to realize that um, when they're responding to a GitHub issue or a pull request, that you know they're commenting on a person, not on the code. And you, you say the opposite, right? I mean, I think it should be that. I think we have to recognize that when we're. I, I think it's important. I think everything works better when both parties have a, like a clear understanding that like we're commenting on the code, and that that means the commenter has a responsibility to comment on the code. Uh, I, I agree. I, defi- I mean, I, I think know, that there's definitely a balance there too, because like I think that the person that's submitting the code, like the, the usually often like they're a new contributor, you know, and they, there's probably a lot of nervousness about that, and like, the person you know responding you know, should go out of their way to make them feel very welcome. But then they can be very objective about the code too, you know? Like there's, yeah, there's I, like a, there's, you can do both. There's like two sides of that. And yeah, I don't think those are mutually exclusive at all. I So I've written about this issue before. Uh, I wrote a blog post, you don't have to be a jerk to code review. This comes up, you know, particularly with Linus Torvalds every couple months. <laughs> like no, he gives really. these very, he gives these really scathing and visceral code reviews of things. Well, he's not even a code and, review. He just, I mean, he's blatantly an asshole to people. Right. Yeah. That's I mean, different from his code he's usually respond. He's usually responding to like a technical issue, like you know, you like you're a maintainer and you gave him a bad patch to merge or whatever. But he, he's very visceral and very rude. And you, you know, you see a lot of comments if you make the mistake of reading like Reddit or Hacker News. You see a lot of comments that are like, oh, you know, it's it's such a great thing that he's very direct and forward and like doesn't mince words and like you wouldn't want him to be like all nice and like letting bad patches in uh, just to be polite. And it's like. No, those are those are really distinct. Like, not being a jerk and doing good code review, or like those are different like spectrums. Things exist on <laughs> those are completely different be, planes, right? And two different yeah. axes. Like, you can be really nice and do a bad code review. You can be really nice and do a great code review. You can be a jerk and do a bad code review. Like, yeah, it's just totally independent. I mean, sometimes I get a pull request and it's like you know one of the worst pull requests I've ever seen, and it can be really annoying. But like, you have to be like really really nice to that person because you know sometimes they. Put a lot of work into it, you know, and I, yeah, and I and try to be like, it could be that person's very first pull request ever, you know. And if you're like a dick to them, that could like ruin their. They should, they would never code or do open source again, you know. So like, yeah, I like try just, to really be, be like, you know, you can educate them, and not in like an authoritative way. Be like, hey, you know, thank you so much for this contribution. I really appreciate it. Uh, you know, I can tell that you really put a lot of time into this, and you'd be like, here, you know. Here are the issues with it, like yeah, and no, don't do it in like a derogatory way, like people often do, and like you know, like a lot of times it's just like where are the tests, and that's the comment, and like, you know what I mean? Yeah, because they just expect you to like, like the, the maintainer just expected you to like find and read the documentation that they wrote somewhere, but it should be the opposite, like you know, like you, I don't know, you should like. I don't know. Cor- cor- I think being cordial goes a really long way, and everyone should just be more human to each other. And that's probably part of the hacker news thing, because like, if like that security guy, pe- are people just kind of assuming that he was just doing this to tear them down because of his attitude, or is it just because most of the time people are tearing each other down on hacker news, and when someone does do something objective, that that makes people assume that because it's kind of like always this like tearing down thing. Uh, honestly, it's been a while. I don't really remember what the tone of the post was, but like, there was a lot of like really substantive stuff there. I don't remember being jerky. It may not have been polite or like super like friendly, but like, it wasn't like mean spirited. I think particularly like the ethos of not needing to recognize expertise is, is a thing that really like drives me up the wall about hacker news. 
So you, you feel like people dismiss... Yeah, I feel like people dis- are kind of very dismissive of, you know, you know, subjects somebody else has, like, a lot of knowledge about. And, oh, I, uh, I think I know what you mean. has I a lived like- experience dealing with. Like, expertise is a communal recognition of the fact that you're consistently knowledgeable about an issue. And, like, being dismissive of that feels... It kind of feels like my my ignorance is as valuable as your knowledge. One of the things that bothers me the most in life is uh, is basically when someone uh, dismisses someone's direct experience. Basically, I think that's like one of the most harsh and abrasive things that someone can do, because like it's easy to dismiss data and it's easy to dismiss um, someone's like methods when you're doing something rationally, like through the scientific method. But when it's something irrational. Not irrational, um, subjective, like yeah. your experience. Um, when you're being dismissive, you're actually like really asserting yourself onto someone else. And that's actually, um, in my opinion, um, abusive in a way. Uh, maybe. No, no, I, I totally agree. And like, you know, that's, I think that's maybe what the problem is with Hacker News in a way, because developers kind of have a tendency, and I'm generalizing obviously, but to, to work kind of in this um, very objective type of world. We try to have a framework where like, in software development, there are a lot of right and wrong and like systems design, lots of that stuff is like hard, but like. Black and white. You know, there's like, we try to write like functions and we know their behavior and like this function is supposed to add two numbers and we know when it gets the wrong answer. Like, is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. And, uh, and when, so, you know, I mean, someone, you can't dismiss someone's experience. It's their experience. It's just as real as a number is to, and in my, in my opinion, I know, I mean, right. Like, I feel like it's a, a kind of a really common thing to run across. Somebody saying like, Oh, you were wrong to feel that way, and it's kind of like, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry you feel that way. Or the, the, right. the non-dismissal is an example of this. That is denying their experience. They did feel that way. It's not their. You're denying right, like, that they. That and that you was don't a get to emotion. choose how they felt. Yeah, exactly. And that's something that is. Uh, I don't know. That's that's a real problem. No, I, I completely agree. So maybe that's the root of why people get so upset with hacker news right now, and yeah. and in tech culture in general. Maybe, I think that's one of the reasons I've unplugged from it as a whole because it's uh i i I see that a lot because like you know i feel a certain way about certain issues and other people feel a certain way about certain issues but other people assert that you need to feel a certain way and you need to behave a certain way you know and it's yeah it's a denial of your experience and it's uh sometimes they say it's for the greater good or whatever but it's it's very complex and it's i don't know it really i feel like it should take a lot as a person to say i don't want to consider your experience like that, that should be, like, a very high bar as an individual for me to, like, want to decide I don't care how you felt about something. Yeah. And, and like, but that's, like, one of the, you know, that's kind of one of the most basic things that you encounter, in, in at least in, that I do in society, I feel, in a way. Yeah. I saw a, a really fantastic quote earlier this week. We judge ourselves by our intentions and we judge others by their actions. Software is all about the people. Don't dismiss them. Don't dismiss their experience. So next time you go and comment on Hacker News or on a pull request, or you're gonna go do a code review, really think twice and think about the person that's sitting behind that keyboard. And chances are, 
want the same thing that you do. Thanks for joining us.